Uh, hi, this is Catherine Lambrecht. I'm with the Illinois Mycological Association. This is our meeting for June. Um, so tonight's program is the biology and evolution of rust fungi. Um, I believe this was another Matt Nelson excellent suggestion. And this is Catherine Aim from, uh, she's from the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology at Purdue University in lovely Indiana. Catherine, I, Kathy, I turn it over to you. So thank you very much, Catherine. I'm uh, always, always excited to, uh, to talk about rust fungi. And um, I, I, anyway, I, I hope there's a little something for everybody here. So we'll go into some basics about rusts just in general, and then some more detail actually about their life cycles, which I find really, really fascinating. And um, so hopefully, hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it, but, but do feel free to let me know if I'm, if I'm uh, not making anything clear. But um, the rust fungi, you know, I started working with these fungi, oh gosh, probably about 20 years ago. And um, this is back when I used to work for the USDA. And the main reason I worked on them then was because they're really important plant pathogens. So um, the rust fungi in general, it, they're all uh, obligate pathogens of vascular plants. So that means they must have a plant host in order to survive. And this includes a whole lot of our really important, economically important crops, as well as forest trees, horticultural crops, agricultural crops, et cetera. So there's a great need to study these from an agricultural perspective. Um, when we start looking like at organisms that the USDA is interested in as far as exotic invasive disease, you've probably heard about some of these exotic invasive diseases, which are new diseases that are getting passed around around the world out, outside of the center of origin. When we start looking at the actual numbers of things that we're concerned about, in the last time the USDA kept a list of these, about 40, little more than 40% were just rust fungi. So they figure really prominently as the agents of exotic invasive disease. And in doing such, they're actually changing landscapes in even some natural areas as well as in agriculture. So I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But these are really important economic reasons for studying them. But as I started studying the rust, I realized that this is a really fascinating group of fungi or just a fascinating group of organisms from a biological perspective because they combine a number of features in the rust fungus life cycle that are really very rare or unique within the fungi that we really don't see elsewhere, at least not in large numbers. So one of the things that rust, as I've already mentioned, are these are obligate biotrophs, which means, again, that we can't pure culture them. They have to have a living host in order to survive. And this is not a common strategy in fungi. There are some fungi that are obligate biotrophs, of course, but it's not a, a common strategy. The rust fungi also have the largest genomes in fungi. I don't know if you all are aware of the current genomics revolution that's 
underway right now, but we're we're trying to generate whole genome sequences for a lot of different organisms, including fungi. And uh, that can tell us a lot about these organisms. And when we look at fungi, their genomes are an entire order of magnitude larger than your regular fungi, than mushrooms or yeast or something like that. So they have these really massively expansive genomes and we don't understand why. Uh, that's that's a big question or, or, or very few genomes have been generated to, to fully look at that. But it's an interesting phenomenon because it goes against what we know about the genomes of pathogens, which is they're always reduced. And in this case, it's the exact opposite. Another feature of rust fungi that's really fascinating to me is that they undergo an alternation of generations, and they're one of the few fungi that do this. So they have formed two separate distinct thalli. Um, one is called a gametothallus, and the other is called a sporothallus. And these thalli, so you can think of it as two separate bodies that they produce at very different proscripted points of time in their life cycle. The gametothallus is mostly haploid and is um, where fertilization takes place, and the sporothallus is dikaryotic, and that's where a lot of clonal reproduction takes place but these are separated in space and time. And then in addition to this alternation of generations, most of the species of rust require two different unrelated host plants to complete their life cycle. So they'll form a gametothallus on one host and then a sporothallus on a different host that's completely unrelated to the first one. And again, this happens at different points in the life cycle, very strict points in time. And um, these features together, again, really make them unique in fungi. And the third point is that in addition to this, what we call heteroecious, which means host alternating alternation of generations, they produced five different spore stages during this life cycle. A couple of them on the sporothallus, a couple of them on the gametothallus. And these spore stages don't look anything like each other. Um, each one has a different function, a different cytology, a different morphology. So in the past, it's been very, very difficult for biologists and mycologists to even link up all the different parts of the life cycle for one species together because they're so separated in, in space and time. And um, of course, we can do a lot of that with DNA now. But in the old days, where I am right now is at the um, Arthur herbarium at Purdue University, and that was the Center for Rust Work about 100 years ago. And Charles Arthur did a lot of the working out of some of the first working out of some of these life cycles just by taking spores and inoculating a set of 14,000 different plants to see what the alternate host was for each species he would come across. So you can imagine how intensive and laborious it was to work these life cycles out again. So now we have DNA and we can sort of match different life cycles up with all those inoculation experiments. But the upshot means that we don't have complete life cycle data for a lot of these. And so making the inferences about these life cycles is somewhat hindered by the fact that we don't understand them, uh, complete life cycles for, for a large majority of the rusts. So been talking about rust fungi. What specifically are these? If you're um, 
taxonomically minded, then, you know, of course, we're talking about the kingdom fungi, and these are basidiomycetes, the same as smut fungi and our mushroom-forming fungi, but this is a completely different suborder of basidiomycetes. All of our mushrooms are in the agaricomycetes, and all of our rust fungi are in the puxineomycetes. And then within the puccineomycetes, the rust fungi themselves are all within a single order. That order is called the puccineales. So sort of analogous to the agaricales, which contains most of our mushrooms. So a single order, this order has at present 18 families, 166 genera and about 8,000 species. And that in fact makes it the second largest order of fungi. Only the Garakales have uh, more species numbers than the rust. So it's an incredibly huge group of fungi that, again, is often overlooked. But um, when I ran these numbers a couple of years ago, this could be a little off now, but a couple of years ago, um, the rust themselves comprised about a quarter of all of our described basidiomycetes and close to 10% of our described fungi. So again, it's a really species-rich group with 8,000 species, and certainly our largest group of plant pathogens. There are more described species of rust than all of our other plant pathogens put together. So really large group, but these really bizarre life cycles. And so um, I want to switch gears just a moment now and talk about some of the impacts that rust fungi have had just on human culture and agriculture, and we can go all the way back to our very first written records, and these are clay tablets from Mesopotamia. And um, there is reference in these clay tablets to a red sickness of barley, which we believe refers to a rust fungus on wheat. So um, as you know, back in Mesopotamia, we're talking about the dawn of agriculture, our first probably domesticated agricultural crops were grains, and these were probably afflicted with rust fungi. And of course, in Mesopotamian times, the only cure for these rust diseases was to pray to a god. Uh, in this case, it was the goddess Nicolim that, um, that the Mesopotamians would pray to uh, in order to have less disease on their crops. But we can move forward in time a bit to Roman times and we see the same exact problems. And this is pretty strong in the Roman record that uh, certainly the Romans depended on wheat. Their wheat was infected with wheat rust and infections could be so severe. These epidemics could be so severe that the Romans created their own god, Robigus, who was the god of rust. And every spring you would have to sacrifice to Robigus so that you would ensure uh, less disease in, in your wheat crops in the coming years. Um, in fact, this, this um, festival, Robigalia, which was the ancient Roman festival, still survives today uh, in some form in the, in the Catholic cap calendar is, is Rogation days. So there still is a vestige of that, that ancient Roman uh, practice then. Um, certainly when we get to um, more uh, current written records, well, still somewhat ancient, but we see references that we believe apply to rust fungi in all sorts of ancient writings, Greek, Egyptian, 
uh, in the Bible. Uh, most of these seem to refer to um, wheat rust. And the first actual archaeological records of wheat rust we have are date back to about 600 BC in Egyptian times. Remember, the Egyptians like to equip uh, somebody prominence with with lots of accoutrement they, they can take on to the next life with them, which would include caches of food such as grains. And these grain caches have wheat rust in them. So we know that this rust existed at least in Egyptian times for sure as a scourge on um, wheat populations. But what's amazing is you can extend for more than a thousand years of human history. And the only way that people ever had to overcome these rust diseases was prayer until about 1660. And this was the first time that somebody devised a method to actually try and control these diseases. And this happened in France. And again, it happened with wheat rust. But wheat rust, we know now. So I've told you how they're heteroecious. They host alternate. It alternates between wheat and a plant called barberry. Now, back in France in the 1600s, People didn't understand, there was no germ theory of disease. They didn't even understand microorganisms then. But farmers understood that if they had barberry growing in fields adjacent to where they were growing their wheat, that the epidemics would be much worse than in fields that didn't have the barberry. So without even understanding the mechanism, they um, instigated the very first agricultural ban that we know of, and that was a ban against barberry in France, and it was largely successful in preventing these big epidemic outbreaks. And um, when um, colonists came to the United States, to the southern United States especially, we brought with us, or our ancestors brought with them, uh, wheat along with a lot of their other agricultural staples. And wheat really could not be grown very well in the south of the U.S. because um, along with wheat, we brought Barbary and we brought the rust. And so rust epidemics in Southern US were really, really bad from colonial times on forward till the early 1900s. And um, that's why you see these um, corn-based staples as part of the cuisine of the South because there were shortages of wheat. And so people turned to corn as the grain to make grits, a sort of corn porridge or cornbread or even bourbon, which is a, a corn-based uh, distillate, right? Instead of a wheat or rye-based one. Um, but um, in the um, early 1900s, um, uh, the Roosevelt administration looked at what had been done, actually somebody found these early Barbary bands in France that were very successful. And so the Barbary eradication program was set up in the United States. And at this point, we did understand the life cycle and what we were doing. We were cutting the life cycle in half by eliminating Barbary. And those Barbary eradication really worked very well for keeping our wheat epidemics down. And that was the main tool that we had for, for reducing epidemic. It didn't entirely eradicate the rust disease because new infections would blow up from Mexico every year, but it reduced the severity of disease here in the United States. And then something really important happened. Um, first off, 
it's hard, it's hard for me to even imagine, but it wasn't until 1927 that the entire life cycle of a rust fungus was finally elucidated. And this work was done by John Craigie. It was published in Nature. And he discovered this last of those five spore stages I was talking about, which are called the pycnia. So, or at that time it was, now we've referred to them as spermagonia. But with this information, we finally understood the entire life cycle and that paved the way, especially knowing where fertilization occurred, paved the way for better breeding programs. And that um, was developed, of course, by Norman Borlaug. And I'm sure a lot of you probably heard of Borlaug. He was a very famous um, agricultural scientist, but he was the first person to breed durable resistance against wheat rust into wheat. Um, of course, he was given a Nobel for this work, and his work in wheat sparked the entire green revolution, which is still where agriculture is today. It's this idea that we can breed plants and stack multiple resistance genes into them that are resistant to these different biological pests that will keep the pests from attacking the plants. Um, with this um, new wheat breeds that Borlaug developed, wheat was deployed around the world as a primary staple in a lot of areas in the world that could not grow wheat previously because of heavy rust infection. Uh, unfortunately, fungi are much more clever than us, and this resistance lasted for just about 50 years. And then in 1999, in part of northern Africa, in Uganda, which is where this gets its name, UG99, a new strain of wheat rust was discovered that was able to overcome all the resistance that had been bred into wheat. So it took the rust 50 years to figure out how to overcome all this resistance. Part of the problem is that in the breadbasket of the world, um, people still grow barberry as well and um, continue to grow it near wheat fields. There's a lot of economic reasons. Barberry serves as a fruit, as a dye, other things. And we suspect that the rust was just able to continue to use the sexual cycle to overcome all the resistance that had been bred. At this point in time, this UG99 strain is of tremendous importance around the world. It's not made it to the United States yet, but it does threaten um, the livelihood and the food security of probably close to 3 billion people in some of in the near and around the breadbasket of, of the world who already are under economic and social economic stress. Uh, the U.S. Uh, agriculture is frantically trying to breed new breeds of um, new cultivars of wheat that are resistant to this particular strain. But to my knowledge, they have not found any yet. Now, um, something interesting, you notice that was in 1999 when we see this resurgence of this new strain, brand new strain of wheat rust, Puccinia graminis, moving around the world. And around the same period of time, in the early 2000s, there's a whole slew, this is about the time I started working on rust, of rust starting to move around the world. Um, Phacopsor pacorrhizae is one that was, again, of great concern to the United States. It originated in Asia, moved to Africa, and was kept out of the Americas 
for about 50 years, but it made its way to Brazil in the 1970s, I believe. And um, the United States was very concerned that it would make its way up to our, our shores from South America. Of course, soybean is another really important crop in the United States. Um, soybean rust did make it here in 2004, but the USDA had put a lot of good scouting infrastructure programs in the way to keeping it from establishing itself here. So it still blows up every year, but we managed to fight it back with fungicides. This picture you're looking at here gives you an idea of how devastating some of these can be. This is a soybean field in Brazil. And in Brazil, they basically prophylactically spray with fungicides every couple of months to keep the rust at bay. So that's the only way they have a management, just spray everything with fungicides. And what you're looking at is a field where they sprayed with fungicide, but the sprayer missed a strip right here. And this is a week and a half after spraying. And this is a strip that was missed. So it took the rust a week and a half to turn this little strip of a soybean field into dead plants. So you can see how quickly these things can move and why they're so concerning. Puccinia sidii is another one that just started moving around the world. And it's of great concern. It doesn't threaten an agricultural crop, but it has a huge host range in, of plants in the Myrtaceae. This includes some fruit, food crops such as guava, but also importantly, things like eucalyptus. And you think about Australia and New Zealand, their entire ecosystems are built around endemic eucalypts. And then most of those are susceptible to this rust. And it is right now completely changing some of these ecosystems. So the battle is really on to try to get this new invasive rust. This one actually came from South America where it originated and, and blew the other way around the world. But uh, the, the race is really on to try to get this under control before it completely devastates some of the Australian ecosystems. And then I could go on and on, but the point is that we have just seen a huge influx of these things in the past couple of decades, and they don't seem to be stopping. Humans are moving around quicker, agricultural products are moving around quicker, and the rust is moving around with them, the different species of rust. The last one I want to specifically mention, though, is one of my favorites, and this is the rust that infects coffee. And this is actually like wheat rust, not a new disease, um, but it is becoming newly problematic. And to understand this rust, um, we sort of have to go back to around the 1500s when coffee was first exported. So we know that, that coffee originated probably in Ethiopia certainly in Northern Africa, or at least what we think of coffee, which is coffee Arabica, but it was a, it was a backyard crop. People grew it in their yards and produced the coffee for their own local consumption. Um, it wasn't actually agriculturalized until the 1500s when through Arab trade, especially with Syria, um, Syrianese um, farmers brought a bunch of coffee plants over there, started cultivating it on big plantations and trading the coffee with the rest of the, um, basically the Middle Eastern world through the Middle Eastern trade routes. And then we get to the colonial period, European colonial period in the 1600s, especially the Dutch and the British 
came in contact with coffee, brought it back home, and it was a huge success. At this point in time, everywhere in England, there are actually coffee houses on every corner in every city in England, and people are massively consuming coffee. And as a result of this, the Dutch and the British turned a lot of their colonial properties over to the growing of coffee as well. So for instance, Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, was a British colonial property in the 1870s. And they turned every single square acre that was arable in, in Ceylon over to coffee production, they had huge coffee plantations on the island to feed this massive craze for coffee that was going on in Europe. So 1870s, coffee is king. It's being grown in Ceylon, in India, through most of the South um, Pacific, wherever there's some colonial European interests. And what's really fascinating or horrifying is that a couple years before 1870, in 1861, a British explorer uh, around Lake Victoria, so this is in northern Africa, uh, between Kenya and Ethiopia, basically discovers a new disease, and you're looking at coffee rust right here, on wild coffee around Lake, Lake Victoria, and he sends it back to Kew, which was the center for identifying these things. And it was a new disease, a new fungus. Nobody had a name for it at that time. A couple of years later, it makes its first appearance in Ceylon. So 1867, the first note of disease by this rust was on the island. By 10 years later, it had taken out the entire coffee production of Ceylon. There was no acreage left for coffee, completely devastated it. So the British um, turned to growing tea in Ceylon. So now we have um, Brits pretty much got rid of all their coffee houses and started growing tea and tea is there to stay. But the rust itself, after it devastated everything in Ceylon, it moved to India and it started devastating plantations in India. And what the British and the Dutch started doing is trying to move ahead of it and replanting, moving all their coffee production further and further out in the Pacific and the rest would follow right along and take it out. And so by the 1900s, most of the coffee growing was done in the Americas. Coffee is not native to the Americas, but South and Central America became the primary places for growing coffee because they were free of coffee rust. And there was this perhaps naive belief that the Atlantic would act as a cordon sanitaire to keep all the coffee rust out and that we would be able to continue to grow coffee in the Americas rust-free. Well, that lasted until 100 years, until 1970. And then again in 1970, we have the first report of coffee rust in Brazil. And a little more than 10 years later, every coffee-growing region in the world has coffee rust except for Hawaii, which is out on an island in the middle of the South Pacific all on its own, right? So from Brazil, it just took it 10 years to blow up throughout um, South and Central America and the Caribbean. Um, what's interesting is that although the rust was present in the Americas, it never caused the type of major epidemics that we saw in Sri Lanka. 
So it could be managed in the Americas, much the way the Brazilians manage soybean rust by just spraying everything with fungicide ahead of time. We could manage coffee rust in the Americas by careful pruning of infected material, by fungicide application prophylactically and other control measures. And then something changed. So in 2008, we get the first reports in Central America that coffee rust is causing epidemics like what was happening in Sri Lanka 100 years earlier, that coffee farmers were not able to keep a plant alive, that it was just blowing through and taking out everything. And the worst of this happened in 2012 in places like Honduras and Guatemala, all those places um, that were already seeing some socioeconomic stress you add the fact that there are 3 million small shareholder farmers dependent on coffee for their food security. It's not a food crop, but that's how they make their living. When you take that crop away, the bottom falls out and you've got millions of people without a means to make a living. So it was really, really a devastating epidemic. And then in 2020, uh, just this last October, it hit Hawaii, which was the last place in the world, coffee growing region where the rust had not invaded. Um, I spent uh, a couple of weeks in October trying to identify rust by Zoom. Um, Greg will know how fun trying to identify fun time by Zoom is. <laughs> but yes, it, it was indeed coffee rust and we are working now to um, to genotype and see how it, how, where it came from, how it invaded Hawaii. But this story isn't over yet. Um, we've had a couple of dry years in Central America. So the epidemics have, have dropped back down. But as soon as we get a, another warm, wet year, we expect another massive epidemic. And this is putting more and more stress as we see in the increasing um, immigration from this part of the world, et cetera. Um, because of this disease. There's a really nice article in The Atlantic. It was written, gosh, I don't know, maybe six months or so ago, if you're interested in reading up more about the effect that uh, coffee rust is having in Central America. Okay, so that's it for my history lesson. So I'm going to completely change tax again now and get back to that original life uh, original question which was about the life cycles of these things now that we know a little bit about some of the damage they can do and as I've mentioned already uh, rust fungi have what we call complex life cycles and what's interesting about life cycles and especially complex life cycles you know we're used to thinking in biology just sort of as organisms as static in time, but they're not, you know, an organism is the unfolding of a genome through ontology. It's the development through time. And whenever we take a rust sample, for example, we're taking one particular point in time, but these, these things have very complex life cycles. And something that a guy who actually worked mostly on slime molds at Yale University, John Bonner, I know Greg knows who I'm talking about. He was a, a really great researcher of slime mold life cycles, but he really believed that life cycle differences were of paramount importance when trying to understand the evolution of different uh, organisms. And there are some patterns that we see over and over in the tree of life. 
And one of these is this development of complex life cycles, these life cycles that alternate between different hosts, especially in parasites. Uh, we see that in other eukaryotes. Don't see it much in fungi, but we definitely see it in other parts of the eukaryotic tree of life. So it's a type of life cycle that's evolved many times, so it must have some benefit, although it's kind of difficult to understand what that benefit could be. And so that's where my work has really been focused over the last couple of years and where I'm going to sort of take you on a deep dive of, of how uh, complex life cycles might have evolved and what, what I think they might mean about speciation. And just for um, those of you who aren't familiar um, with the term, uh, usually we use the term complex life cycle when we talk about parasites. So it's usually a term in parasitology where we talk about a parasite that must use two different hosts to complete that life cycle, something like a rust fungi. There's a newer term for this that includes things like metamorphic insects, but I'm really talking about the, the parasite problem here, the repeated evolution of these complex life cycles and parasites. And our, our most um, familiar examples are things like the, the um, the um, the organism that causes malaria is one of these uh, complex organisms in, in a group called the Ampicomplexa, but it alternates between obviously mosquitoes and mammals uh, to complete its life cycle. And there's some other animal parasites like that, some parasitic helminths. And what we, everything we understand about complex life cycles really has to deal with animal parasites. Um, nobody's really looked at it for other non-animal parasit parasitic systems. And what's really unique, again, about the rust, I know there's a lot of fancy words here, but the rust um, parasitic life cycle is the most the, or the least common of all these different types of parasitic life cycles because it's multicellular in both stages. Things like the malaria pathogen, for instance, are always single-celled on both parts of their life cycle. But of course the rest are multi-celled and that brings some extra uh, complexity to the adaptation of the rust for this. So I've been talking about a lot about rust life cycles. Here's one uh, illustrated. Anybody wants to memorize this? Uh, I love to give this to my students and tell them if they can memorize this, this one, they don't have anything to worry about for the rest of biology. But um, this is sort of the ground, getting ground plan and just joking, don't worry about memorizing it, but here are five different spore stages that take place at different times. So I'm illustrating here, let's say a rust in a temperate system, such as this one here that alternates between willows and um, pines. And in the spring, it'll form something called spermagonia on one host. And those spermagonia fertilize each other. So these are haploid spores. And once they fertilize, it grows through the bottom and forms another type of structure called an esham. It has these dicaryotic spores that blow to the new host. And this is usually at the start of the season, so end of spring, beginning of summer. And then once it's on the new host, it produces a third type of structure called a uridinium with uridinia spores. And these are the only spores that are capable of reinfecting the same host that they came from. 
So this is a spore stage that's really responsible for most of our disease epidemics because this is a stage that cycles around and around. So we think of wheat rust or coffee rust cycling in this stage until the end of the growing season. Um, towards the end of summer, the beginning of winter, um, environmental cues will stop this stage and cue it up to form what's called a teliospore, which is a stage it overwinters in. And then in the spring, that teliospore germinates, undergoes meiosis, produces a basidium, just like a basidiomycete, with these haploid basidiospores that go and start to cycle all over again. So that's it in a nutshell. Again, as I mentioned, um, this is the half of the life cycle that we call the gametophthalus because it's largely um, haploid. And this is where our gametes fertilize each other. And this is the sporothallus, it's dikaryotic. And again, this is on two different, not just two different um, hosts, but has a very temporal component. Every stage takes part at a certain point in time. And so the real question, well, actually, there's many real questions, but just to, um, for any of you familiar with rust, this is our stereotypical rust life cycle, but just understand there's actually variations on this if it's, as if it wasn't complicated enough. But um, what I just showed you was a macrocyclic heterocyclic rust, but there are also things called demicyclic rusts, which skip the uridineal spore stage. There are things called microcyclic rusts, which skip both the uridineal and eschial spore stage. And there are things called endocyclic rusts, which convert this eschium into a telium. I know a lot of words, but basically just understand that there's a lot of variation to this basic life cycle. And so one of the first questions that we had was, and it's something that had never been resolved. So people who thought about rust, and believe it or not, there's actually, especially in Germany, there's a rich body of literature of people who've worked with rust and, and thought about these for a hundred years or more, about which kind of life cycle came first. Was it this really simple life cycle? And then each of these different spore stages was added? Or did it start out as this really complex cycle? And then each of these spore stages were taken away. And there's different views on this um, when you read up about it. But for those of you who follow fungal systematics, you know the best way to test any old hypothesis is to sort of do what we call resolution of the tree of life that you're of the area you're concerned about and see if you can get any answers there. And so this is really old work, but basically what we wanted to do, because it wasn't known until this work was done, is figure out what the sister group to the rusts were. So think about it, like with mushrooms, like agarics, you know that the sister group is bullets, right? We've known that for a long time. But for rust fungi, we had no idea. And so we figured if we knew what the sister group was, we might have an idea of what kind of life cycle started first. And it was actually something we weren't expecting. Anybody ever seen this before? <laughs> this is a little moss pathogen. So this is a moss and this white stuff is the fungus. So it forms this little clavaria type of fruiting body, but it's, it's not related to mushrooms or to clavaria at all. This is a fungus called Yocronarsum. And so it has this very simple life cycle. 
It's strictly obligate pathogen of mosses. And it forms this fruiting body, but the hymenium here, instead of being just basidia, like you would see on a mushroom, it's actually a hymenium of these things that look like teleospores. They're called probasidia in this case, but they look like little teleospores. And then each of these germinates like this. So the basidium has these transverse septa that look like rust fungi, not like mushroom basidia. So it turns out that the ancestor or the sister to the rust are obligate pathogens. They're pathogens of non-vascular plants. And interesting, they form this sort of teleospore, but they don't have any of those other spore stages. But that does give us a hint that at least the teleospore was probably original to the rust, right? It must have existed there if it exists in the sister. And so the next step, was to sort of resolve the rust tree of life and see what's down at the base. Um, do they have teleospores? Do they have any of these other spore stages or are they just teleospores and the other spore stages came later? <clears throat> so again, this is really early work um, I did trying to resolve the rust tree of life. And um, basically down here at the base of the tree, we have you guys know what I mean when I say good resolution. It means we're pretty confident that we understand how evolution happened here. But at the tip of the tree, in this case, we have no idea what's going on. It's not well resolved at all. But the base is resolved enough to actually look at the very earliest rusts and see what they look like. And this is what they are. This earliest group of rusts that we know about anyway belong to three major lineages here. One of them is this thing called Roger Petersonia torii. And this is the oldest, it's like our dinosaur of rust fungi. It's the oldest rust that we know about. It's the oldest rust that's ever been sequenced anyway. And um, this work has been repeated now by others, not just myself. So we're very confident that this is indeed our earliest rust. And what's really interesting about this thing, it infects a tree called um, Toria californica. And this is one of those giant, giant ancient conifers that right now only exists in a couple of relictual populations in Northern California. It's thought that it had a much broader distribution in the past, but as eons of time go by, it's been pushed more and more to where it's just got a little limited distribution now. And um, the only rust spore stages known for this rust are actually the Isha and the Spermagonia. So we know two spore stages. We have no other, no idea if this thing produces uh, teleospores or uridinia spores, but they've never been found. Um, the hypothetical idea is that this tree is so old that um, it has survived, whereas the alternate host, the hypothetical alternate host for the other part of this life cycle is gone extinct. So we only know it now from this part of the life cycle. It's really a, a cool tree. Um, the tree also produces these giant cones, cones that no known animal can disperse and it's thought that a large mammal that's gone extinct in North America was the original disperser of the cones as well. And um, the rust 
lives inside these trees is a systemic infection. So it's spread throughout the tree and these trees live for hundreds of years. And so this rust has been in there for hundreds of years and every spring it comes out and pumps out these spores, and they go nowhere. The alternate host is gone, but it's very interesting. Then the next group is the group that includes our coffee rust. So this is a group we call Hanelia. But what's interesting about this group is the exact opposite is true. We only know the Iridinia and Telial stages um, on Rubiaceae, mostly coffee and things like that. We have no idea what or if it has another host for the other part of the life cycle. And then the third group in here are fully heterocious, audacious, and we know thanks to some early sequencing work, um, at least the full life cycle for a few species of these that alternate between ancient gymnosperms and onagracy in this example. So what does it mean? If we put the entire thing together, we think by inference, what this means is that the actual ancestor, which is represented here to the rust, must have had all five spore stages. It had these teleospore-like um, stage. It certainly had Spermagonia and Isha, and it likely also had Uridinia, and it was host alternating. So we get to the point where um, our early ancestor contained all this complexity already and that the rest have evolved from a really complex life cycle into some of the more reduced life cycles. So I take this out of the literature from people who uh, study these complex life cycles and parasites because this brings us back to sort of the paradox about rust fungi, which is we've got a situation where we have these incredibly complex life cycles and no idea how a parasite would benefit from such complexity or how it would even maintain it. So it's counterintuitive that you would have a group that's so successful in terms of species. Remember our second largest order of fungi in terms of species and yet have these life cycles that seem to be so restrictive that it wouldn't be able to speciate at all. And so this is actually um, the next stage of, of the work we've been doing, which is trying to understand what could actually be the benefit of having such a complex life cycle. And there's a couple of hypotheses posed for animal parasites. I'm not going to talk about them here because they really don't apply um, to rust fungi at all. One has to do with maximizing growth rate or body size. And the other, this upward incorporation is the idea that um, if you're a parasite of an animal and that animal gets eaten by another animal, then it's smarter for you to become a parasite of the animal that eats your original host. That's called upward incorporation or trophic status. But again, it makes absolutely no sense for rust fungi because plants do not eat other plants. So this, this just fails as an explanation for why this kind of life cycle is adaptive. So there are two um, different hypotheses that people usually talk about when they talk about pathogens, and you've probably heard of these. Um, one is that pathogens evolve by host switching and that's displayed on this tree here. But if you took the, a pathogen 
um, and it were to jump from host to host to host to unrelated host, that would be a case of host switching. We know that that type of strategy um, does not require any kind of specialization for the pathogen, but it does require a lot of flexibility and, and, and some uncertainty to be able to jump from host to host. And the other explanation we use a lot to explain parasite um, speciation is something called coevolution, which is that a host and its pathogen are perfectly adapted to each other. And as soon as a host evolves a new gene to fight back a pathogen, say, then that pathogen evolves a new gene to make it affect that host, and that these two are constantly co-evolving together. It's something that's called the Red Queen Hypothesis um, from Alice in Wonderland, where you're running just to stay still in one place. In this case, you're always running to keep up with your pathogen or your host. So which explanation do you think fits rust fungi? Well, you will find both. Um, there are many adherents who believe that coevolution explains the relationship from between rust fungi and their pathogens, and many adherents who will say that host jumps is what explains the relationship between um, rust fungi and their pathogens. And this is just two example papers, but the debate has raged on for those of us who follow these kinds of nerdy debates for for 100 years now. Um, and so this is where actually um, a postdoc of mine that'll show you in a minute, uh, I got him to work on this problem for me. But there's first, if we look at this rust tree of life that I mentioned earlier from, from my 2006 work, something really important here, and I've shown it in three different colors. And that is, if you try to look at the teliospore hosts, they're all over the place. But if you actually map the eschal spore or the gametothallus hosts onto this tree, you find that all of these in the base of the tree utilize early gymnosperms. All these in the middle utilize pinaceae and all these utilize angiosperms. And this sort of follows the broad evolution of vascular plants as we understand it. So I've been playing with this idea for many years. And then I talked to Andy Wilson, whom you see here. Uh, <coughs> I was very lucky to steal Andy away from Greg Mueller for a year or two to do this work. <laughs> and then Greg got him back. But um, Andy worked on this problem and we used, um, again, systematics to try to resolve it. And what we did is resolve the rust tree of life. So we took um, exemplars from all across that big tree I showed you. We picked exemplars from each branch of that that were known to host, host alternate or thought to host alternate. And then we reconstructed that phylogeny. And then what we did is reconstruct the acial host or the gametothallus phylogeny, all those hosts, and the sporothallus hosts separately. So we had three different phylogenies. And then we tried to reconcile the two. And the idea is if there's coevolution involved, like I showed you before on this figure, we should see that the two trees of life completely mirror each other. If there's host jumping involved, we should see that they don't mirror each other, that one's going to look like this and the other's going to look like that. 
But what we had done that nobody had done before was analyze these two different hosts separately. And of course, what we found supported our hypothesis that was emerging completely in that they don't behave the same on different hosts. So the rusts are very, very co-evolved or correlated with the gametophallus host, but not at all with the sporothallus host. And that's basically what this little chart's showing you here. I know there's a lot going on in this particular tree, but what this is showing you is that we can resolve or rec what we call reconcile the two phylogenies for the gametophallus host and the rust very easily, but cannot do it with the sporothallus host and the rust. Okay. So what does that mean? Which hypothesis is correct? And here's the working model now. It's that both are correct, but they're acting on different parts of the life cycle. So in the sporothallus, we see very strong evidence for biological specialization or what we call coevolution. And in the sporothallus, we see very strong, strong evidence for biological or biogenic radiation or host jumping. And both of these processes are acting on rust fungi, but they're acting on different parts of the life cycle. And so this really, we believe, allows a lot of flexibility into this kind of adaptive life cycle. There's a lot of um, good biological reasons that I really don't want to bore you with, but um, that also support this. A lot of this has to do with fertilization, um, being very strongly tied temporally and spatially. So that's going to put a lot of constraints on host jumping in that stage. And the fact that the sporothallus produces this massive uridinous spread, which again helps it in these host jumps. So there's lots of parts about, the, in fact, the different spore cycles that also support this. So if we believe that this was the base plan and we've got these two different factors acting on the life cycle, then the next thing to look at is how these other life cycles evolved in the rusts. And I promise you there's a reason for doing this. Um, but basically for this, this is a, not a hypothesis of mine. This is something we just went back to the literature for. There's another German researcher named Trangel in 1904 was one of the people who posited that the heteromacroformer, the complete full life cycle was first and these other were, were derived from it. And his evidence was for this was just in observing different rusts that um, had different microcyclic life forms and macro life forms, but shared a similar host. And so what Trangel thought was that the macro forms that shared a host with microforms, that the microforms are actually derived from this macroform. I know it's a little complicated, but he called them correlated species. And he looked for evidence of two different rust species infecting the same host where one was microcyclic and one was macrocyclic and hypothesized again that the microform was derived from that. And so we look for evidence of this. We can do that now again, of course, with, with genetic analysis. He had only his brains to go on, but we've got DNA. And so this is what the particular rust we tested this idea with look like. This is um, a rust called Trangelia. Um, 
fittingly named after Trangel, so this is the one we chose to work on. But here's Trangelia prunispinosi, which alternates between a prunus and an anemone, and then Trangelia fusca, which is a microcyclic form, which is only on the anemone. And we look for evidence that these were correlated species. And in fact, so this is the genus Trangelia. This is DNA reconstruction of that. And we do find it. We find several instances of host alternating macrocyclic species being sister to single host microcyclic species that share that same host. And we found multiple instances of this. So we do believe that this is actually one explanation for how these very complex life cycles can be adapted. So think about it here is what we've been talking about. This is a full cycled rust. And through time, you've got it co-evolving on the, on the gametothallus host and little radiations on the sporothallus host, right? But also, this also leads to speciation in another direction. So in this case, this full cycled rust if it loses this host, it can speciate and become a microcyclic rust on this host as transgel posited. So there's a whole new way for speciation to occur. We posited in this paper that the revert the, that this might also be true too, but we didn't find any evidence for it. And that is, again, think of the split here. We've shown that these microcyclic forms can evolve from the macro. Could we see something like this where we have just a uridineotelial stage also? So the other side of the equation. And to answer that one, we needed a better resolved tree of life. I promise I'm getting close to the finish here. But this is another former postdoc of mine, Alistair McTaggart. And um, Alistair and I spent several years trying to actually make a really nicely resolved tree of life so we could see if we could find any deeper evidence for something happening in this direction here. So the Trangelia study was just done at the granular species level, but now I'm looking sort of at a deeper level to see if I can find any trace, trace evidence that there might be lineages evolved in the other way, just the uridineal telial host. And so to answer this now, I want to look just at this one suborder here. This is the Ravenellianii, and it has four families. And what's interesting about these four families the two earliest ones are heteroecious and macrocyclic. So they're that typical five spore stage host alternating rust. The next family is only known from uridinia and telial. So there's about a hundred species in this family in the Phacopsoraceae, and all of them are only known as two threes. They produce basidiospores from those telia, but they do not reinfect the same host and they've never been shown to reinfect anything else. So they just persist in the two, three stage. And then we get to this family right here, the Ravenelliaceae. And this is an audacious macrocyclic family. What does that mean? It means it produces all five spore stages, but on the same host, it doesn't host alternate. So how do you put all this together? Okay, so this is my model for what might be going on. You take, your basic heteroecious macrocyclic rust, 
and you sever the two hosts, some local perturbance, extinction of one host, ecological changes, whatever, what have you, but the two get severed. Well, we've seen that the host that hosts the um, gametophallus is capable of becoming microcyclic. It evolves to become microcyclic. We've shown that at the species level in Transgelia. So what about the other way? Well, we think this is what's happening in the Phacopsoraceae, that they were severed a long time ago from their gametophallus host, and they've been persisting just as sporothalli on their sporothallus host. As I said, they produce these basidiospores, but they don't reinfect anything that we're aware of. But once in a blue moon, or at least once in the rust tree of life, eventually, remember this basidiospore is this stage that's tied to the, the gametophallus, and that's the one that's really, really host-specific, and it's very hard for that stage to adapt to a new host. But once in a blue moon, that can happen. And we think what happened in Ravenelliaceae is that eventually these basidiospores were able to reinfect the same host they were done on. As soon as that was done, reformed all five spore stages immediately. So that was the roadblock in that direction. What other evidence do we have? One interesting thing, the Ravenelliaceae is actually the second largest family of rust fungi. And resolving it is impossible. This is just for those of you used to looking at, um, at uh, evolutionary trees, like I showed you a minute ago, phylogenetic trees. Phylogenetic trees um, force an assumption of dichotomous speciation on them. But when we look at Ravenelliaceae, this is the only family we see this, it completely burst everything evolved at once. It went, underwent a ma massive radiation. That's what this is showing you here. And again, we're trying to time this now, but the hypothesis is that as soon as it was able to learn to reinfect the same host, it produced this incredible burst of speciation. Now, do we see anything like that in the other side? Do we see any of these guys completely speciating from the gametophallus host. And so far, I've found no evidence of that. So really, the, this massive burst of radiation really seems to be tied to being able to uh, produce these uridinia, which is something that's missing in um, these microcyclic forms. So when we look throughout the tree of life, we'll see a few microcyclic forms dotted as endpoints here and there but no, absolutely no radiation or lineages of, the, of this type of life cycle. And again, as I just said, I think this is because of the incredible reinfecting capacity of this uridineal stage, which is missing here. But once a new mutation occurs, such as the one that allowed the basidiospores to reinfect the same host, that's immediately reinforced by the uridineal stage. And so if that's missing, then you don't have that massive burst. So here's our new rust diversification model. Um, so basically we've, we've seen that this, we've got regular old speciation, but under two different influences, right? Two different processes. Then we've got speciation occurring that can happen just in the gametophallus and now speciation that can happen in the sporothallus as well.
So lots of different avenues to create new species. And of course, then you have all these localized radiations happening from the Uridinia spores as well. So that's our working model um, to help us explain why this actually might have been an adaptive advantage for the rust fungi and to explain why there's so many species of these things. Uh, the next step, what's next? We're actually, I won't bore you with all this stuff, but we're looking at genomes now to see if we can actually test some of our model by looking at different genes in the genome and seeing how they're expressed and on what host they're expressed on, et cetera. And so far, <clears throat> we actually have found some evidence in, in this class of genes called effectors which are genes that rust use to infect a host. And there are certain families of effectors that are only produced by gametophallus hosts, no matter what the rust species, and certain class families that are only produced by sporophallus hosts, no matter what the species. So again, it looks like there's actually two entirely different genomic processes going on for these different, different life stages. So, uh, only a little bit over an hour, but um, the conclusions um, for the rust fungi that uh, the earliest ancestor to rust likely was a macrocyclic rust, um, certainly uh, had something resembling a teliospore and spermagonia and isha, um, and that um, heteroecism, that process of alternating between hosts, actually provides multiple opportunities for speciation and radiation that uh, utilizing a single host and just being co-evolved or just utilizing uh, host jumping doesn't provide. And um, it also offers a lot of plasticity for overcoming the loss of a host which if you depend on one host would be fatal. If your host goes extinct, it would be fatal. But in this case, there are avenues to overcome that. And that, um, that heteromacrocyclic life cycle is actually the starting point for multiple avenues of diversification. So rather than thinking about rust as why do they have such a complicated life cycle? Maybe why are there so many rests? Because they have such a complex life cycle. So I have um, lots of funding agents and um, especially my lab members, past and present, who didn't always work on rests, but they certainly always um, kept me thinking and on my toes. So many thanks to them. I appreciate your patience and time, everybody. And I will. Well, we have some questions if you'd like. So is there an online image catalog or similar resource to help identify what we see in the field? <laughs> we could hope, right? <laughs> There's, um, you know, the best way to identify the rest you have is actually by host. If you know the host, there are online resources to do that. So the USDA has a website. It's called the Host Plant host fungus, host plant makes no sense, the host fungus databases at the USDA. And if you type in the host name and select rust fungus, it'll tell you all the rust fungi on that host, for instance. Um, so that's a really good use. As far as a visual atlas, there's not really any 
for the U.S. I'm building one now, but it's in no way ready. There is one for Australia um, that gives you pictures of some of these spores and infections. It's really, really nice. So you can look at that one. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so few people in the world who work with rust fungi. We just have not got our, our resources up and running like we should. Do the different spores in the life cycle have different methods of dispersal, such as wind versus animal dispersal? They do. They do. Such a great question. Um, wind is prime, probably, so it, it, again, I'm generalizing because we're talking about 8,000 species and each one's a little different. But in general, wind is very important for the uridinia spore stage. So that's the type that reinfects, the stage that reinfects. And people have found uridinia spores, you know, way up in the upper atmosphere, crossing oceans. So we know they can get around that way. For the part of the life cycle, the spermagonia, um, animals can be very important in dispersing that. So things like insects will be attracted. They produce a sugary liquor basically on top of these things and insects will come and feed on that and spread the gametes around that way. And then never neglect humans is probably the most important animal for spread of these things, just inadvertently spreading them around on plant products. <laughs> um, did any rust fungi undergo whole genome duplication? Oh God, who, who asked that question? Uh, Nicole Omnit. Sorry if I messed up her name. Nicole, She's a member who's right now in graduate school. Nicole, you're a woman after my own heart. That's one of my hypotheses is that these genomes were so big due to an early polyploid event. Um, right now, we don't have any genomic data to test that, but right now we're getting genomic data from that sister group, the, the Yocranarsum, and from that Roger Peterson Toria. So hopefully we'll be able to answer that in a year or so. But that's a great, great idea. It wouldn't surprise me. Seven different spore types across all species, not within one species? Yeah. So there are actually, yeah. So one species can actually produce up to seven different spore types. I didn't talk about the other two spore types. These are something called mesospores. They're, they're, so Puccineocroptili is a good example that actually produces seven type spores, but um, two of them are produced inside one of the five sorites. So it's still five spore stages, but seven types of spores. So mesospores are produced in addition to uridinia inside the uridinium, if that makes sense. And amphispores are produced in addition to teliospores inside the telia. <laughs> Not all of them produce all seven types. Most of them just produce five types, but there, there are some that produce seven types. Okay, we also gonna have to make sure, I don't forget, we have questions on uh, Facebook that I wanna make sure gets oh. asked. Um, and how did they find the oldest rust fungi they sequenced? Uh, that was pure luck. It was pure luck. Um, I, another mycologist named Tom Bruns, he lives in the Bay region, and he knew I was interested in rust. 
So he sent me samples of that one, the 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 one on Toria Californica, and um, I sequenced it, and it just uh, turned out to be even. I sequenced that thing, I think, back in two thousand and five, and it is still to this day absolutely the oldest rust that we that anybody in the world knows of, oldest in evolutionary terms possibly also in terms of the age of the thallus because those thalli might be several hundred years old inside those host plants um i have you know never say never but i'm pretty sure it's of of the rust species that have been described it is absolutely i'm fairly confident in saying the oldest now whether we find something else that hasn't been described yet that's older could be Okay, I'm going to uh, uh, refer to a uh, observation, but I also see that uh, uh, Matt Nelson has some questions, and I think maybe he should uh, unmute himself because it's you know more complicated. Let him ask what the heck. But uh, Charles Olson uh, commented: Adler's Far Horizons regularly launch stratosphere balloons and collect dust and spores. That's he has more of a comment than a. That's cool. Who does that? Actually, uh, Adler's Far Horizons. Is this is this the Adler Planetarium, Charles? Uh, I'll bet. No, that's the okay. Adler I got it written down. I'll look into. Oh. No, that's that's exactly right. Uh, the Far Horizons mm -hmm. program at Adler Planetarium uh, regularly, I think, three or four times a year, launches a stratospheric balloon and does various experiments, taking photographs, recording wind speeds, and in some cases, collecting uh, air samples at elevation. So. Yeah. That's been sent off to labs for study uh, to huh. see what, what they find. Spores Dang. and uh, other things along with the dust and sometimes even small insects like spider uh, hatchlings. That, that would be cool. When I was in Louisiana, um, I worked with somebody who had a, a weather, those weather balloons that they yep. would send up. And I got a couple of little uh, spore samplers with sticky tape, basically. Yep. Uh, up on a couple of those. Um, but yeah, that's Fantastic. good to know. <laughs> Thank you. So Matt, join us, please. Hey, I just wanted to say that was a really wonderful talk. Thanks Aww. so much. Thank and if, if you have time, I got a couple questions. Um, one was, um, I'm thinking about like heteroecious rusts, and I was wondering if when they're infecting two different plants, if they use the same sort of mechanisms to overcome the plant defenses. And then was just also thinking about floral mimicking rusts, and if that's something that's evolved once or multiple times. Beautiful. Thank so you. I'll answer the floral mimicking first, because <sighs> Puxinia minoica is the only one I can think of off the top of my head as far as really well documented. Now I've seen other rusts, like there's some coleosporiums on Solidago and they produce, they can induce the plant to produce these little galls that almost start to look like floral mimics, but they're not yet. They're not real floral mimics. So I think Minoica is the only one and floral mimicry, as I'm sure you know, is really rare. We just described a fusarium that does that from Guyana. I don't know if you saw that paper, if you like floral mimics, but it's spectacular. Um, and then your other question was, I've already forgotten it. It was, it was about heteroecious species. And 
if they use different mechanisms to overcome defenses of the two plant species or if it's kind of one strategy to take down two plants? No, they use different mechanisms. So this is cool. This is really cool. So the Hostoria, the Hostoria are best studied in urodine spores because that's the stage that causes disease. But um, the Hostoria are very, very different in the urodine spore as opposed to what the um, the sperm, the um, basidia spore produces. So basidia spore penetrates. Um, it usually goes straight through the cuticle. And then I can't remember, it's called just a, a C. hostoria, but I can't remember the specifics of it within the host. The uridinia spores typically go through the stomata. They don't punch through the cuticle, although there are exceptions, and they form a different, completely different type of hostorium inside. So they're physical mechanical differences. And then as far as the effectors, basically, which is the only thing that's been studied on a genomic level. Um, so the effectors are the, the class of proteins that recognize the host and fight off its defenses, right? So they're usually very specific. But again, these things, and we only have data from three, so this is very broad generalization, but there are different families of effectors produced in the sporothallus versus the gametophallus as well. So it looks like they had different strategies. Uh, Craig Mueller inquired, are tally perennial? If so, can they be long-lived? Are which ones? Sally. How is that pronounced, Craig? Well, Sally. So I was confused, Kathy, because I always think of these being, and you know, even less than annual, and it's just reinfecting the host. But you said something about Toria, that those thalli could be long-lived, which, of course, messes up my whole concept of how, well, everything you said, no, not everything. I, I knew some of it tonight, but, but you did expand my horizons tonight, I will say. But, but that one really blows my mind if they are long-lived. They can be long-lived, Greg. So the ones that infect trees can be systemic and long-lived. So it's the Toria... Obviously, the ones that infect annuals or biannuals are not long-lived. Um, but um, there's things like Cronarsham that infect pine trees. They can have very long-lived thalli as well. That's the same thallus reproducing new sora year after year that causes those cankers. Some of them, like Melampsera, which infects Salix, those are not systemic. They stay localized infections. Um, gymnosporangium causes systemic infections. So you're same, not in the, the prunus or the malus host. It's localized there on the leaves, but in the juniper, it's long lived in there and it'll again produce off the same thallus every year. So if you do find, find them, they're usually the tree rust. It's usually the Gametophallus, not the sporothallus, that's long lived. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, I can definitely, cool. they can do it. So they have some um, defense mechanisms themselves. So they're uh, defending their territory if they're not, or somehow. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Another question along that line because the uridia spores and that whole, uh, the, the, the gametophallus, no, the sporothallus. 
do are those I always think of them being uh, having high host fidelity. Do you see, you know, experiments uh, that you know? Because if you said that, hey, that there seems to be potential host shifting switching in that part of the thing, do we actually see within individual species some evidence of trying that out? Or is it really, really, really tight host fidelity? That, no, that's a good question, Greg. We don't. I haven't done the experimental work to do that. Others have done. Uh, others have done. So there's there's a whole class of hosts that we call just greenhouse hosts. They've never been found in nature, but they'll infect in the greenhouse from the uridineal state. So that's probably part of that plasticity. It's not perfectly adapted, but you spray a whole bunch and you know one of those spores is going to be adapted but it doesn't pick up but whether i'm trying to think if there's any evidence in the tree for for a recent host jump and i that's that's a that's a really good point yeah i'm sure there is but i can't think of it off the top of my head and i need i need to look at that because that'd be strengthen our model as well cool thank you okay so but by the way uh andy methvane has been watching via facebook and said it was wonderful presentation. Um, there's a, uh, <laughs> it was rather pleasing. Uh, hey, by the way, Andy, if you send us an email, I'll get you back on our email list if you'd like. Uh, Mariah uh, Rushula, I hope that's your real name, or you're <laughs> named after a mushroom. Uh, <laughs> she goes, I am curious. She came late, so she's not sure this was covered. But she said, I am curious about horizontal gene transfer in fungi, including rust fungi, the role in evolutionary history or how much that is yet considered in these histories. And thank you, even seeing part, a wonderful presentation where I've learned so much more about rust fungi than I ever had before. <laughs> so HGT is a good question. And um, the short answer is it's, it's probably there, but we just don't know because we don't have enough genomes yet. We just don't, these things are so big. I think to date there are maybe eight complete rust genomes and those are resolved. Only two of those are actually have good resolution down to chromosomes even. The rest of them are still hundreds of scaffolds, you know, so they're not, not well resolved. Uh, it just takes a lot of pack bio money and uh, computational power to get good genomes. But um, certainly, there, I'm sure you wouldn't ask the question if you didn't know this, but there's lots of evidence, lots, but there is reasonable evidence for HGT and in, um, in other parasitic fungi or plant parasitic fungi. So there is apparently evidence now in rust. it's not quite HGT, but for somatic hybridization. So actually, um, it's not HGT at all, but this is another type of... Um, a parasexual type cycle where two dicaryotic hyphae from germlemes, from uridinia spore germlemes, can fuse and exchange nuclei. So entire nuclei, not just just a few genes. And uh, I'm good. There's another question for from Mariah, but after that, Patrick, maybe you can unmute and ask your questions. But uh, from Mariah, she says he has a very general, basic question. Are there rust fungi that are beneficial to their hosts at any stage, extent, or ancestral? Gosh, 
That's huh, that's an interesting question. From the host perspective, the answer would probably be no. Um, because it's always going to be a fitness cost in some respect to the host. But there is the whole school of thought, you know, at least in community species level, that pathogens, parasites are very, very useful and important because they actually maintain and drive plant biodiversity as well or host host biodiversity. So um, again, the, the, the cost to the individual, I'd say there's probably no benefit to having the infection, but certainly to the community, yes. Patrick? Uh, I had two questions. One was on the uh, gymnosporangium that's common around everywhere. Um, does that make a new telial gall every spring? Yeah. <clears throat> So basically they do the old galls dry up, but they'll, they'll use, they'll use that same area of the bark to produce new telia. So the telia are new, but that deformity can often still be there. It depends on the species. So like okay. clavipes just erupts out of the bark, but something like, um, Juniperi virginianum, which forms those big galls. Yeah. Yeah. Those things usually dry up and fall off, but if they don't, it can actually produce new telia out of that the next year. Okay. Uh, other question was on the coffee rust. Is um, Do we know the alternate host for that? No, we do not. You'd think we would, but we and don't. Which, I forgot which part of the life cycle is on the coffee. It's the uridinia spore, the spore cows. So it's not getting genetic recombination normally? That's correct. It's not getting genetic recombination, you know, and um, we just spent a couple of years developing microsatellites for it and genotyping a huge range of historical and current material. And it doesn't look like it. it's undergoing any sex, at least not in the new world at all. It's strictly clonal over here. The only what signal signature recombination I'm seeing is actually from some collections I made in Ethiopia, which is what you would expect. Um, but that tells me that the alternate host, if it's I, I, I just can't tell if this signature I'm getting is old or if it's current, but there was recombination um, somewhere in Ethiopia. But that's where, obviously, the alternate host would be if it's still extant. Uh, Charles inquired, hypothesis as to why the genome is so large. You know, it's been driving me crazy. Um, <laughs> not just for practical reasons, <laughs> but these genomes, so they're big. We're, we're talking, they can be up to a gig, right? And when you talk about yeast, it's, you know, 10, 20 megabases. So from what we know, it's not necessarily tons of increase of gene space. A lot of it is just duplicate of repetitive DNA and size of introns and things like that. But there is some duplication of, of the gene space as well. So one hypothesis is that <coughs> rust might have arisen, or at least the one I'm working with now, arisen from an early polyploidy event. And um, that might explain a lot of things about the life cycle. But again, I've got to get 
some genomes from down at the base of the tree and the ancestors or the relatives, excuse me, <coughs> to look at that. <clears throat> but if you, again, the, the, the wisdom in parasitology is that all parasites undergo genome streamlining. So, um, which is that as you become more adapted as a parasite, you just shed these extraneous genes, right? I mean, we see that in fungi too, in microsporidia, they're highly specialized, very tiny genomes. And you see this all throughout the rest of our parasites, but not the rest fungi. So trying to explain why this genome does not follow genome streamlining one obvious hypothesis is, yeah, there was some kind of duplication or polyploidy event. <coughs> Excuse me. Mute myself for a second here. Oh, poor lady. Uh, so uh, I think that's that runs the gamut. Uh, unless, Greg, Patrick, or Matthew, you want to add anything to this conversation. No, great talk. I, did, I had one more question, Kathy. I was just wondering, and it's probably may not have the data because there's so few genomes, but I was wondering if microcyclic rusts, you know, if something had to do, I mean, if you've got to have a mechanism to, to jump around on, you know, five different um, spore stages and on multiple hosts and whatever else, and each one of those hosts take a different defense and a different Astoria mechanism or something. So I was wondering if when you get the reduction in you know, the microcyclic, are they smaller genomes? Do they shed some of that or do we have any data? God, I hope they shed it, Greg. Cause that, yeah, yeah, we don't know. So um, the only rest we have are, are the, the heterotype, but um, we are proposing a transgelia pair of a microcyclic and a heterocyclic to, yeah. Cause you and I are thinking exactly alike there. That's what I'm thinking too, that if they're old enough they might start to be genome streamlining. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Thank you, Debbie. Yeah, thank you. Oh, Matt looks like, yep, jump in there. If, if there's a minute, can I ask two quick ones? <laughs> I was just thinking about um, what we kind of see around here in the Midwest and was just wondering, you, you'd mentioned a lot of these rusts uh, transported around and I was just thinking about buckthorn and like the buckthorn rust we see around here and I was curious if that is a non-native rust species or if that's a native one that's kind of co-opted buckthorn and then also how much diversity do we get in terms of uh, rust life cycles here in the Midwest is everyone kind of doing the same thing basically like same number of stages or do we huh. get a, a fair bit of variety that's that's good. Well, okay, so the gymnosporangiums are demicyclic. So that exists here. Some of those transgelias are from Michigan. I'm sure they're into Illinois, but the only samples I can think of are from Michigan that are also microcyclic. So we, we, we get the, the full range of diversity here. We don't get the, the tropical types, which I didn't talk about. They have, again, a different type of life cycle in the tropics. Um, obviously, we don't get that here. But yeah, we've got a good range of the diverse life cycles here. And I've forgotten, Matt, I don't know why, but I forgot your first question already again. <laughs> uh, buckthorn, if, buckthorn, if the rest on there is a native or that's taken advantage of a non-native or if it's 
come over with Buckthorn. What's Buckthorn? Is that Aeschylus? Uh, Ramnus Cathartica. Oh, God. Sorry, I'm terrible with common names. Um, Ramnus. Tree or shrub. I think that one actually is native to North America. Yes, it's it's a Puxinia. I think it's Puxinia abrupta, I want to say, but I'll have to look it up. See, sure. what a pity. Too bad it's not an invasive that came oh, on and could no. wipe out Buxon, right? But, oh, no, we get one that's not doing much damage to it. And you know what? Co- um, ah, what's that horrible, I wanted to say kudo. What's the horrible plant, the invasive plant all over the South? Kudzu? Kudzu. Kudo. Kudzu. Kudzu is a host for Phacopsor pacorhizae. So if there was ever going to be an advantage to that, it would be taking out the kudzu. But no, we managed to keep it under control. (laughs) Well, this has been... Anybody else? I think this was really great. Matt, this was an inspirational choice. Thank you again. And and Kathy, I oh, hope we meet again. you again. You're you're a font of knowledge. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to again. Next time I'll talk about the jungle or something different. But do you also do uh wheat lacoche? I know we mentioned it earlier, but do you go in that direction? Um I did I, I do some work with smuts, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She also does Guiana and now I think you're involved with the Congo stuff, right? Yeah. So kind of biodiversity studies in some really cool parts of the world, so. Yeah. Well, I think you need a glass of water. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I wanted to reach into the screen and hand you something. (laughs) That doesn't quite work that well. I'm fine. Well, give yourself a rest. And thank you again very much for your time tonight. Thank you all. And thank you, Matt, for the invitation and, and... And thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a absolutely, lovely. and I'll send you a copy of the um, of the chat. So if there's anything I missed, you can at least ah yeah yeah. And feel free to email me anyone if you have questions at all. Okay, because we have our friend on Facebook. Maybe uh, I'll I'll contact her and give her your email. She had another question, but I think we've we've tired you out. <laughs> but thanks again. Thank you. All right. And meanwhile, I'll get to work on the cicada versus fungi talk. Or however that works. I want to hear about that one. Yeah. (laughs) Great. I'll put you on the email list if you'd like. Please do. All right. Good night, everybody. Bye.